I'm Anj. And I'm Arnab. And you're listening to Kathakar, a podcast in which we discuss important turning points in history and their human aspects. Protest. Definition. A public expression of objection, disapproval, or dissent towards an idea or action. For hundreds of years, protests have served as the method by which the masses enact policy and action. But how can the dynamics of protests and mass gathering be characterized? Recent research shows that Twitter posts, associated geolocation information, and other social media data can be used to study size, mobilization, and stimulants of these public displays. Today's guest is Dr. Zachary C. Steiner Threlkeld, an assistant professor of public policy and political science in the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California, Los Angeles. He joins us to discuss his research in protest dynamics, which takes advantage of big data to understand individual level behavior at a daily level. So thank you, Dr. Steinhardt Thelkeld, for joining us for a discussion on the protest dynamics. To get started, can you explain to us, well, to the best of your ability, like what the beginnings of group protests and civil disobedience really is and like where it all originated from in the evolution up until the modern era? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, that, that's a big question. Um, you know, someone who's been studying this for 30 or 40 years can give you probably a more detailed answer, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. So the the earliest recorded incident of unrest that we have is from Egypt around like 1300 BCE or so, uh, labor unrest. It, it was someone riding home to their family complaining about, about working conditions and, and trying to uh, talking about like a riot that had happened, a strike that had happened. Um, and then you can find there are books that are like encyclopedia of social revolutions or, you know, encyclopedia of conflict where you'll get like a page or two on, on different conflicts, different uprisings, not wars, but, you know, bread riots, things like that, um, slave revolts. Uh, and so you, there's like, you know, snippets of history of that throughout, you know, rec- recorded history. But the, the modern study of protests doesn't, really analyze anything past the the anti-slavery movement would be when it starts. So the early 19th century with the rise of the anti-slavery movement in Great Britain, and then it really became an international phenomenon. There's um, a lot of academic work on the French Revolution, but that tends to be uh, more qualitative and sociological than the um and the kind of work that that I'm referring to um so then it's the the the, the anti-slavery movement and then there's a lot of work on slave revolts in the new world and then you get up to to basically uh the suffragist movement progressivist movement labor movements at the end of the 19th century and then like those have all kind of been been studied um, pretty, pretty in depth. Uh, but of course, even more recent protest events are, are better studied, um, or at least 
the the studies of them are better preserved, right? There are more people now, and and we we have much much you know better storage and books from a hundred years ago that might have been published are, are just lost to history, you know, their bibliographies, but we don't have them anymore. Um, and so, in American study of social movements, it's the civil rights movement that that looms large. Um, and then after that, you have the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Arab Spring have been the large kind of international protest movements that that people pay attention to. Uh, but otherwise, you know, people have studied everything that's happened because there are people all over the world interested in, in these topics. And then especially with the rise of, of digital media, uh, creating more like documents of them and also making it easier to study movements when you don't live where a movement is. I think things are, all events are now kind of just studied. I see. So as opposed to maybe the qualitative studies of the French Revolution, uh, what did the, quant I, I assume it could be the quantitative studies. What did these look like for opposition to slavery in Great Britain and the United States? Like, was this kind of like a time analysis of of the change in the number of people showing up each day to protest or something like this? You know, that's a really good idea and a really good question. And I don't know the answer, which I'm gonna, I, I, hope, I hope means there aren't very many quantitative studies of it. Um, or if there are, there aren't in like the political science journals that I read. Um, what I have read focuses much more on the communication. It was, it was the anti-slavery movement was like a, a mail-in movement, letters, like letter writing campaigns, le letters to editors, um, lecture circuits, you know, speaking campaigns, but not, not really huge manifestations like we think of as protests. Um, this actually points to, to a difference that hasn't come up yet, the difference between a protest and a social movement where a social movement it refers to a, a broader set of, of practices and time periods that, that are focused on a particular issue, whereas a protest is just a tactic of the social movement. So I haven't really seen studies of protests in the, the anti-slavery social movement. The earliest study, quantitative study of protests that I'm aware of is around... Um, uh, the, I believe they were called the swing riots in mid-century Britain. And to be honest, you'll have to look them up because it's been about a year since I read this paper, but it's, I believe it was related to grain imports and, and corn laws, but there is, there's enough historical data from, from contemporaneous recordings then that there, there are estimates of, of protest size of those, um, as well as then uh, labor strikes in the U.S. and the U.K., late 19th century, early 20th century. Um, there is also a quantitative analysis of the uh, Paris Commune, the Paris uprising of 1871 after um, one, one of the defeats at the hands of the, the Germans. Um, and someone has done really interesting network analysis to find out uh, based on how, how uh, Parisians were drafted into the National Guard you were defending like your neighborhood or other neighborhoods and they, they figured out, I believe like casualties based on these network ties. Um, those are the first quantitative studies of, of, of contentious politics that, that I'm aware of, or the, the first uh, events to be studied quantitatively uh, that I'm aware of. 
and they were are essentially static like there's not much detail on like day by day change and so they they do look at um at easily quantifiable things like the size of a protest at some point or the number of people killed number of people killed is often recorded either in police reports or hospital records and so it, it's pretty reliable um and they're just interested in things like, you know, what what was the average size of a protest? Did they concentrate in one place and then spread? Are they concentrated on a particular day, a particular region? Um, if possible, like who's participating? Is it just, you know, just the miners or just the farmers? Or do we also uh, get, get an expansion into other classes? So you just talked about the 19th century and 20th century, like protests and social movements. So Comparing that to modern day, how do we get data in the modern era? Let's let's start with getting the data, and then you know what they look like is, is a huge question. So we can we can you know we can see where we go with that. Um, and Ansh, you said getting qualitative data, but not qualitative, I, quantitative. Yeah, that was my bad. Okay, because qualitative data is everywhere. Yeah, um, and that that's more anthropology and some sociology. So quantitative data um has historically come from newspapers um because they are they are daily records there are a lot of them and they tend to actually follow a very um a similar structure at least like within country there are like norms about how news articles are are, are written and presented and so it makes it pretty easy to generate data either by training teams of research assistants to specifically look at a certain paragraph or understand the meaning of certain words or, or computers to only look at specific uh, parts of a story. You know, if you know every story has the first, you know, the first three sentences are always going to tell you what, when, and why, it's easy to program that. So newspapers are the dominant source of, of information for the quantitative study of, of conflict. Whether we're talking about protests, riots, rebellions, or interstate war, it's primarily from newspapers. Um, there are often studies, quantitative studies of individual cases, which can uh, use, um, I'll call them institutional reports. And what I mean is often uh, major nonprofit organizations, either affiliated with the UN or inside of a, of a country committed to, let's say, labor rights or, or indigenous rights or something. These sorts of organizations will, will often publish very detailed reports of what's been happening, right? So if they if they want people to uh, to understand all the the, the strikes going on in, in silver mines and the country they're in has has a controlled media environment and the strikers are too poor to have access to to external media or social media, you know, whatever era we're in, well then nonprofit organizations give them voice by by writing their own reports where they've learned about the events because they they live in the community or they go visit the community right or they they have contacts in the communities and by publishing these reports these very detailed reports we get data the other um institutional data is really better thought of as administrative data and that's police records so um just like researchers get access to to archives from you know national intelligence agencies or the u.s state department uh, there are often uh, police departments which have archives and then after some period of time uh, release that information, you know, or grant, grant researchers access to those archives. Um, 
and and then you get you get an understanding of of arrest patterns, who is targeted, um, the the tactics used by police, and therefore the tactics and how how movements respond to certain to certain tactics and, and behaviors on on the part of the state. This is true of the United States. This is true of, of Nicaragua, Guatemala, the Stasi in East Germany. Right, I'm describing a pretty a pretty a pretty broad uh, pattern. Um, Increasingly in the United States, police records are also achieved with Freedom of Information Act requests, right? So I don't know exactly the legal history, why we have this, but you can you can ask, at least at the, for the federal government. But I know also of police, police departments, like certain records, and they can redact some things, but they have to give you those records. And so there are a lot of, of economists, sociologists, political scientists building records of... of um, of police incidents and and how that affects social movements and that, that could be arrest during Black Lives Matter protests that could be infiltration of undercover or undercover infiltration of groups um, all these sorts of things you could only really get from, from archival access. So that's all along lead up to the way that I get data, which is really against um, the newspaper approach to getting data. And, and that's by, by taking advantage of, of the digital production of, of content, um, both from newspapers so that is getting RSS feeds or social media from, from newspapers and news stations, which it's much easier to get that than, than having to download it from a search engine. But really, really, as I'm sure y'all know from, from Twitter. And the idea here is that um, Twitter makes everybody a publisher, everybody who has an account on Twitter is their own Rupert Murdoch, is their own William Randolph Hearst, and theoretically can all reach the same number of, of people. That is, they, we all have the same audience, at least much to a much greater extent than, than, than existed before social media. And so what this means for researchers is that um, since people do post political information online, if you have the right tools and techniques, you can 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 find these posts. You think of them like news stories. Each post is a newspaper article, and then you download them. You download enough of them, and then you have a a very large record of events. And then every researcher will has a different event they care about. Right? I'm a protest researcher, but other people are going to study riots or electoral violence using social media or the Me Too movement or bring back our girls. Um, you know, everyone has different things they study, but we're all using the same approach to, to, to social media. Um, and it's really just this greater quantity of production, this, this greater opening to voices, that is the reason that we can get, get more events and a richer understanding of events. We're, we're no longer reliant on a few journalists working out of a few major cities, uh, subject to editorial and advertising advertising decisions on, on what to publish. So social media, of course, has its own difficulties, but it gives us a, a uh, much greater proportion of events that are actually happening than newspapers or television do. So yes, that actually leads me to the next question because we actually have read about uh, some of your work with Twitter posts and social media and the use of the, this mass amount of data that is being produced by social media and its use in pro uh, studying protest dynamics. So actually, I was just gonna ask you would, you, would you mind going into more detail about how you actually 
use these Twitter posts and, you know, um, you know, because it, uh, because most of your work seems to be in mathematical analysis and model building uh, for understanding protest dynamics. So how do you develop metrics that allow you to analyze protest dynamics from, uh, you know, seemingly qualitative data that's produced by Twitter posts? Mm-hmm. Yeah, good, good question, Arnab. Um, so, you know, I, I appreciate that you described my work as mathematical modeling of, of protests. Um, I think people who do mathematical modeling would tell you that that I'm I'm doing some pretty simple stuff, um, and I, I I think of that as well. Like I you know I, I if if you pursue a, a quantitative social science PhD, the like statistics that I'm doing are pretty mainstream. You know, um, I'm definitely a quantitative researcher, and I'm definitely more quantitative than a lot of people, but I'm not on the quantitative cutting edge. Um, my, my real value add is getting the social media data and learning how to process that and get data from that as, as the second part of your, as, as your question actually asks. Um, so I, I'll first just tell you briefly the infrastructure I use to collect data and then how to turn the qualitative tweets into to quantitative data. So one thing that surprised me even in 2013 when I was starting this research, but that is even truer now, is how relatively um, little computing power one needs to do this work and uh, how cheap that computing power is. So um, I used Amazon EWS or AWS uh, EC2 is is the product and then their T2.micro instances is what I started with in 2013. It's just like, I mean, it's a virtual server, but it's, it's a very small unit of processing power they give me. It only cost about $200 a year. Um, and I had, I had only one of those set up. Um, fortunately, my PhD advisor paid for that. Um, although push comes to shove, I, I could have I paid for that. Currently, I now have three T2.small instances that, that I pay for. They're now about $180 per year. And each of those connects to Twitter's API in real time and ask for slightly different things. So I'm getting three sets of tweets on these virtual servers in, in the AWS cloud. And then I send those tweets down to a server in my office. At the same time, I, those tweets go to two other servers that colleagues maintain. So we have, we have backups in case one of us lose, lose our data. Uh, my server cost about $8,000 when I bought it in 2016. But that's because, uh, you know, I, I was buying like a professional like workhorse server and I was becoming a professor. But as a graduate student, most of my work was on a, uh, oh, so my advisor did have a, a server that he used for storage space. So I guess that was a, a few thousand dollars. But I, I could have bought an external hard drive with two or three terabytes and, and hooked it up to my laptop and done the same thing. So anyway, I was using a 2009 or 2010 MacBook Air with eight gigabytes of RAM and 120 gigabytes of, of a solid state drive. And I was getting about 12 gigabytes of tweets per day. And so I was quickly having to learn how to, to, to manage analysis in a low memory environment where my computer would quickly get, get overwhelmed, but, but I could do it. So at the end of the day, for about $1,000, I, I was collecting uh, 5 million tweets, 5 million geolocated tweets per day, which I, th- I think is pretty cool. You know, a thousand dollars is 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 a lot of money, but 
if if you're you have a job and you're getting a reasonable job and you're and you're getting paid, you can probably afford it if, if you really want to. If it's like a hobby, for example. But certainly, if you're a researcher, you, you can afford it. So that's how you get it. AWS servers, AWS virtual servers down to a, to a hard server, and then I either do analysis on the server. I have 128 gigabytes of RAM, 32 processors, or I then transfer over to my my new laptop, a MacBook Pro from 2016. It's a mid 2015 model, and it has eight gigabyte, 16 gigabytes of RAM. Um, and but then I, I I just I just do it on here. So it's 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 not like these crazy supercomputers or these incredibly large clusters like I I I thought it would need to be when I when I started this work. Um, now, how to how to make qualitative data quantitative? Um, have y'all have y'all worked with with data in a class before? Like analyze spreadsheets and and done stuff like that? Yeah. So basically, each tweet is just a row of a spreadsheet, and it's it's not it's you don't download it like a CSV like a spreadsheet, but you can think of the information in a tweet as corresponding to columns in a spreadsheet. And each row of the spreadsheet is a tweet. And so one of these columns is the text of a tweet. You know, I loved watching LeBron play last night, or, you know, I, I love the Build Back Better bill, the text of a tweet. That's a column. And then you can create a new column that whose value is based on whatever's in the text. So if I want to study, to, to study how frequently people talk about politics, then maybe I'll have a column that is a one every time a tweet contains words like uh, Trump, Biden, AOC, better, Pelosi, GOP, you know, whatever, like a dictionary of words. And then I'll have a one if a tweet has any of these words, a zero if not. So you get a bunch of ones and zeros. And then you can combine that with columns for other topics, but also columns that represent other data, right? So columns that are a one if the user is from Texas or a, a two if the user's from California or a different column that's a one if the user has been on Twitter for more than a year or zero if a, the user has been on Twitter for less than a year. And then you can use all these ones and zeros as filters basically to analyze different parts of, of the data. And so I've turned qualitative description, the you know, I believe Build Back Better is great. I have been on Twitter for less than a year and I live in California these descriptive things into numbers, and then you can apply math to those numbers. And so it's once we get to the apply math to the numbers that, that the stuff that I'm doing is, is um, pretty mainstream is, is what I was trying to say. So um, that's the qualitative stuff. You can also do, you can do more sophisticated natural language processing analysis of text than just the ones and zeros. Uh, for example, instead of using a, a, a dictionary like I described, you can have humans read the text and say, hey, is this tweet about politics? And because humans understand subtlety, we're gonna understand sarcasm, we'll understand subtweeting, we'll understand slang. We're probably gonna recognize a politics tweet or a tweet about a specific athlete or you know whatever you're interested in better than, than just a bag of words. And so you, you have a bunch of, of labels for tweets about certain topics and then you can train a computer to figure out what is it about the text that the human said is, is, is politics? And so if you give enough of these training data, if you give enough training tweets to, to the computer, 
it then learns what a politics tweet looks like, what a LeBron James tweet looks like, what an Oscars tweet looks like. And then it, it says, this is the pattern. And then you give it millions of other tweets and it sees if those other tweets have the, the, that same pattern. And if yes, it gets a one, if no, it gets a zero. And so uh, that's just machine learning that I described. And you can do the same thing with images. So instead of reading the text, you look at the image that is shared in a tweet and you give a bunch of ones or zeros for categories you care about. And then the computer learns the pattern and looks for that pattern in other images. All right, so thank you so much for describing how you collect data. If you don't mind, can you go into depth about one of the topics of research that you've done? Most particularly, we were looking at things that you've uh, studied in the past and it showed up that you've studied a lot about Arab Spring. So if you don't mind, can you like talk to us about what that air field of research looked like and what was behind that and what you had to do for that field? Yeah, great. So I studied the Arab Spring because I, I had to figure out my dissertation topic in the 2012-2013 academic year. And we were still feeling effects of the Arab Spring. We still are, uh, but it was it was very recent. And so it was obvious that 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 would be a good thing to study because it combined all of my interest in, in network analysis and, and big data and protests. So that's how I got into that. Um, the Middle East is, is one of those uh, parts of the world that, that is, is a frequent object of study for, for American social scientists, um, just like, like studying you know, China or Europe or, or terrorism or things like that. Like people have obviously studied the Middle East for a long time, um, but my contribution was to bring a very a large breadth and depth, basically. That is to, to look at things in a very large comparative perspective, but also to be able to do it at, at a day-by-day -day level, understanding in detail like how people were behaving and that that's the social media big data angle of it. And so I, I remember distinctly, we had a, um, a guest speaker come to UC San Diego and I got to meet with her for about 30 minutes, which was standard. Um, and I was telling her about my dissertation. And I said, you know, I, I want to understand um, the, I, I said, why protests succeeded in the Middle East, which really meant I want to study protests in the Middle East. And she was a, a bit dismissive. And she said, you know, isn't that like overdetermined, which means aren't there too many possible explanations and not enough data? And so you can say whatever you want to fit the data. And I said, oh, no, in fact, in my data set, I have 12,000 protests over, you know, 400 days in 16 countries. And her eyes kind of lit up because she thought I only had 16 outcomes, the 16 countries that I was studying. She didn't understand that you could study things at this level of detail that I was studying. And so that, that's what I brought to, to the study of, of protests during, during the Arab Spring. Is, is being able to see how people are communicating every day in a country's protest and then compare that to how other people were communicating every day in their country's protests and see if there were similarities. I wasn't the only person to study social media during the Arab Spring, but other people would do a survey in one country or they would qualitatively analyze a couple thousand tweets or they would do really good case studies of how different movements used social media um, but I, I was I, I was able to contribute by taking this this very broad perspective that
that could still be much deeper than people thought was possible because of, of the, the data and techniques. So continuing our discussion on the Arab Spring, I was actually wondering, uh, I think in, a, in, in their attempts to limit the spread of protesting and the violence associated with protesting, I think a lot of the governments in the Middle East, specifically, I think Egypt, actually tried to control the spread of social media and the spread of um, posts and posts against the government. So knowing this, it seems like the data set with the, the Twitter data set uh, could be heavily biased towards a government after, you know, after some time, if, uh, if you look at the latter half of the Twitter posts. So how do you deal with these kinds of biases um, you know, for the for the Arab Spring data set, but but then also for uh, Twitter data sets in general. Yeah, great great question, Arnab. This was another uh, positive aspect for me of studying the Arab Spring, which is that social media was still relatively new, and so it actually was not as monitored um, and used to repress people as I, we now think it was, um, except in the Gulf states, which I'll talk about it in just a second. But, but really social media was a pretty free space. It was, we, ha we have evidence that security apparatuses monitored it because when, when protesters then stormed these offices, they found like, you know, the, the history of computers was, 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 you know, being on some Facebook groups or following some Twitter users. And there are even some, some stories of, of um, of printouts of people's social media posts and Facebook pages, and I believe the, the the Egyptian Ministry of Security, because like some 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 officer was was looking at them. So the state was aware of them, but we have no evidence that that they were that that social media posts were used to 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 arrest people before the start of the Arab Spring, um, or that the states were engaged in manipulating the online discourse during protests, except for the Gulf states. And so that's, that's the next part of my answer. The Gulf states are, are, are richer and had the advantage of having seen what had happened for a couple months, you know, basically spread across North Africa and the Levant. And, and I, you know, I think basically realized that social media was a thing. And so we do know that Saudi Arabia and, um, and Bahrain and the UAE were, um, were arresting some very influential people based on their posts, as well as um, what we would now call misinformation. So there are some posts from the Ministry of the Interior in Bahrain, for example, saying, oh, all these traffic's too bad today, things are, are closed down. Uh, not mentioning that, you know, they were shutting down roads because of protests. It was like, it was like a traffic update. Um, there was another account in Bahrain um, that, that doxed people. So there was some of that happening, but it, it was much less widespread and sophisticated than now. Now though, of course, to, to now the second question, um, we, we do know that's happening, of course. And so in the narrow world of, of my research agenda, um, it turns out that there, there's no real evidence that these manipulation campaigns are, um, are using geolocated posts, which is all my posts are geotagged. And I've done a lot of things like uh, applied some machine learning algorithms that other people developed, 
as well as looked at lists of manipulated accounts that Twitter's provided. Um, and there's just no evidence. There's, there's very, 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 very few uh, manipulated accounts or tweets from manipulated accounts. And my hypothesis is that's because the, the online space, both for a lot of activists and, and also for, for security groups, is seen as its own realm. It's like trying to control media. It's like trying to control newspapers or television. And so it's about broadcasting stuff out there. And if you're broadcasting a television signal or radio signal, you can't control whether someone in East Germany consumes it or someone in Morocco consumes it. And so security apparatus just don't tag their, their, their tweet as being from or about Riyadh or from or about Cairo or, or Jakarta or Manila, you choose your city. Um, they're just tweeting. But I only look at tweets with, with, with geotags because I actually want to be able to place things in physical spaces because that's how the real world operates and I'm trying to study the real world. And so they do not pollute uh, my data. So the most likely way that my data are polluted is by the biased behavior that you also alluded to, Arnob, which is that people self-censor um, and or don't get on Twitter in the first place if, if, they, if they're going to do, um, let's say, you know, things that could get them in trouble. And so that certainly limits a lot of places that I can study. Um, so, I, you know, I... I uh, um, I mean, you know, it doesn't limit places, but it does, it does cause you to question the bias of, of some of, of Twitter data, of, of, of tweets being representative of how people feel in that country, right? So if I'm analyzing tweets from Ethiopia, I'm pretty sure those tweets are going to be representative of the, 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 the educated, probably pro-regime people on social media, but, but that's, a very, that's a very small subset of, of the country. Um, so the first answer is I just try to, to not study those countries. And a lot of countries that I think we think of as, as like heavy police and controlled um, have, have freer online spaces. That's kind of why people navigate to the online spaces. So Uganda is an example of a country like this. Venezuela is a, a country like this. Cameroon is a country like this. Uh, there are a lot of places where the online space is freer. And so people do um, people are, are more expressive than, than they would be offline. Um, but then the final way that I, I, um, uh, the final reason that, that, that it's okay to, to use social media data in the study protests in, in most places is because we don't actually care whether the people in our data set are representative of the people in their society or if their opinions are representative of the people in their society. All that I care about is that their behavior is representative of people in their society. So for example, I've, I've been looking at behavior of, of users from China who jumped the firewall during COVID. Now these are absolutely well-educated individuals in, in cities. They, they're like in third tier cities as well, but it's not a representative sample of, of Chinese people. They're, we estimate they're about, 3 million Twitter users in, in China, and we observe a few thousand more join. So obviously I'm not studying Chinese people, but we, they are consuming information about, they're doing behaviors that we think other people would also do. So they're consuming information about COVID, they're learning about Tiananmen, 
They're, they're following foreign news organizations. And it, it's all behavior that we believe is suggestive of, of, um, of, of trying to figure out you know, what, what's going on during COVID. And so I think that's exactly how people who are not on Twitter would, would behave. Similarly, in the Arab Spring, the, the fact that people look to their friends to understand what's going on doesn't seem to be something that would be unique to, to, um, to labor rights activists on Twitter, right? That's probably also true of, of their aunts and uncles who are not on Twitter. That's true of the bakers who are not on Twitter, right? That's, that's just kind of how people operate. So the point is, if there's behavior that's on social media that is the same as behavior that doesn't occur on social media, and we think people from different classes and different strata and different backgrounds exhibit those behaviors similarly, then the, the bias doesn't matter as much. So then the argument becomes like, can, can we make that assumption? You know, like that assumption is not always true, but, but in many cases, and certainly for, for mass mobilization, I think that's true. So that actually makes a lot of sense now. Like, um, so using the Twitter posts uh, from like, it, you're not necessarily looking uh, for a sample of people whose views represent the views of everyone in the population, but you're looking at the behavior and how their behavior and how they're responding to events is representative of the entire population. And it seems like you can make exactly. that case. Yeah, exactly. So, so for example, in the China paper I just mentioned, um, we find that the tweets of people on Twitter, both from before COVID and after COVID, aren't really very negative. And there, there's especially as like the rest of the world experiences COVID, there's a rally around the flag effect. And so if you studied just tweets, the text of tweets from, from China, you would, you would say, oh, you either Chinese Twitter users love their government or you know, don't have strong feelings. Um, but if you look at who they follow, which is the analysis that we did, you look at their, their, their behavior, not their speaking, you see a difference story. And that's kind of what I mean, right? People are tweeting, they know other people are looking. So people do kind of censor their opinions, but we try to minimize, in my research, I try to minimize looking at what people say. If I do, then only in certain circumstances do, do I feel comfortable looking at what people say. Um, I had another example. Oh, there, there was a paper a few years ago that was called like, I, I used Twitter to, to study elections and all I got was this paper or like studying elections in 140 characters and all I got was this lousy paper or something. And the point was about how hard it is to actually conduct polling with social media, precisely for the reasons that you alluded to in, in your question. So if you're trying to do a lot of like political stuff on, on based on what people tweet, then you do have to be concerned about the representativeness of your, of your, your sample. And it's very hard to, to know exactly who you're studying on most social media platforms, especially when using public data. So yeah, that, that makes sense. And actually um, my next question was going to be still like regarding you know, the general population and, um, and individual beliefs arising from you know, the general populations. But uh, we read one of your papers and it was on um, how people on the periphery can also, uh, without major social connections, can make a, a big impact on the spread of protesting. And, you know, this could be seen in the case of 
once again, I'll go back to the Arab Spring, but the same case can be made with Muhammad Bouazizi's. Uh, you know, uh, him. You know, he was just an everyday man in Tunisia, and him setting himself on fire. You know, was the it was in, it incited and uh, a wave of protests across the Middle East. So, um, can you briefly explain, you know, how you come to that conclusion that you don't necessarily need uh, a wide array of social connections in order to incite um, large-scale protests? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's really a story about um, the cost of, of protesting. That is when there's either like a, a so you're concerned about a, a social or reputational cost. Like, am I going to a, a weird protest, um, or will you know I get I get fired, or well, or then an economic cost, like will I get fired, or physical cost, like will I get arrested? will I go to jail or could I get killed? Then you need the assurance of the people around you that either you're not crazy, you know, your boss isn't going to fire you or it's not that dangerous. Whereas if you, if you were to look to someone not like you, so a politician speaking or a newscaster speaking or even an influential activist, you're, you're going to, to be less likely to believe them because one, you know they have strategic motivations to, to say something to get you to do some action, but two, they're only one person. You know, their opinion counts just as much as, as your friend's opinion, but you have a lot more friends, you have a lot more family, you have a lot more acquaintances. And so it's, it's the net balance of, of these these people, these people's opinion versus the few opinions of the influential people that 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 outweighs these people outweigh the few people, um, and and are therefore more influential for for going to to protest. Um, how it becomes uh, mass definitely requires like uh, some lack of state repression and some larger widespread understanding that everyone else feels similar. So this is what social media contributes is that it provided a new way for a lot of people to learn that other people feel the same way. But this this provision of common knowledge is is not unique to social media. So for example, in in East Germany, during the, the Monday protests in Leipzig in 1989, people got in the habit of flashing their apartment lights on and off to signal support. And I think you did this like at a certain time. And the idea was everyone could see everyone else doing it. So even if there weren't tens of thousands of people out in the streets, you could at least show each other that we were all similarly dissatisfied. And so then at some point the fear breaks and then everybody goes out. At some point, why does the fear break? Why do we all converge on going to the street? That's kind of a million dollar question. It's like, why do wars start? Um, but the, it's, it's, so it's the knowing that other people feel your way, feel like you do and knowing that gives you the, the, um, the, the, I don't want to say confidence, but gives you the mo- the motivation, the reassurance that it's okay to go protest. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think we're going to quickly change up topics before we wrap things up. I wanted to talk about the your spatial analysis with geocoding that you do with tweets and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So for the audience and for us, what does that mean? And how do you really do that? Yeah, th- thanks, Ash. Ansh. Um, 
what it means is that when you have the chance to do a, a geospatial analysis, like sequence in a course or, or take a geospatial class, don't be fooled into thinking that you have to use Esri GIS um, or any other proprietary software. It's like if you were to take a data analysis class and they said you had to use uh, Excel or Stata or SPSS. My point, my point is simply you can, you can do geospatial work with free open tools like, like R and Python. Um, so what, what, um, what I do there is, is to again, take advantage of the fact that, that, that I have geolocated posts. And so if, um, if you have lat longs, you can figure out what city something is in, and then you can group people together in, in a city. And then I used cell phone data, which had um, what's called a geohash. And that's just a, a nine character string that corresponds to a square somewhere in the world. And every, every place on the world has, has a geohash. And so um, you can then match lat longs to, to geohashes. And then you can compare people who are protesting based on cell phone records to people who, who are protesting in um, in, in, in my Twitter data, as well as some newspapers, a lot of people gather newspaper data. <laughs> um, so once you have that though, once you have the, once you have space represented in data form, so, so the nine, the nine digit geohash or the, the lat long, you know, those are just numbers that you can manipulate just like you manipulate the ones and zeros in, in, in LP. And so for the, the cell phone data, we just count the number, instead of looking at, at tweets from a city, we count the number of, of devices that go in between, that, that go in a, a nine digit geohash. We, we use many nine digit geohashes, but we still get a bunch of ones and zeros anytime there's a ping from that geohash. And so we can then aggregate those ones and zeros, just like we aggregated the, 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 the dictionaries or the topic models when we had text. And then we can compare these aggregated estimates from different data sets, so long as we aggregate in, in largely similar ways. And if we see that there's correlation between these measures generated from different spatial data sets, then, and we trust one of those as being very, very likely to be the capital T truth, then that gives us confidence that these other methods of geospatial aggregation also have validity. So just yeah, wondering. at the end of the day, oh, like once you can represent a concept at, as a word or a number, you can do any sort of uh, mathematical manipulation of it with, with basically the same set of tools. Yeah, so actually I was just wondering a little bit uh, further along like um, in spatial analysis, uh, when you are working with the uh, the geolocations of the posts, do you mainly uh, place these posts in you know um, buckets of ideologies corresponding to a city, like a general city, or do you also look at you know exact locations of posts and maybe do like um, time analyses of how uh, how people of certain ideology are shifting throughout a city? Or mm -hmm. you know whether one part of a city is more has one ideology as opposed to some other ideology in another section of a city. Like, mm -hmm. what kind of and like what kind of analysis is it usually? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, the most fine geographic resolution that I I really get is at the city level when when using tweets. 
Um, Twitter used to provide much more precise geo coordinates, even when somebody tagged their tweet as only being at a city or, or state level. And then I think it was basically a bug, and or no, actually it was it was like a, a feature to people to like commercial people using their API, and then it was discovered and, and shut down. So now the vast majority of, of geolocated tweets are at the city level, which means I can't see how ideology varies by neighborhood, for example. I still get some things that are what are called point of interest, the GPS coordinate, but we're talking like if I get 5 million geocoded tweets a day, we we're talking maybe like 0.1% of those or, or 1% of those. We're talking like very, very few. Um, and then once you want to like look at something within a city, you're just not getting enough point estimates, like little like geospatial point estimates to, to, to do anything. So my, my geospatial work then gets aggregated to the city day level, not like a neighborhood day. And so then I am looking at, at trends over time within a city. And sometimes that's ideology. So sometimes it's our people talking about this protest, or sometimes it is like, what is the average ideology of people talking in a city on a day? Or I'll then take the ideology estimate estimate and split it into right and left, and then look at how those people are talking differently by 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 city or, or by state by day, um, but not within a city, right? Usually, there's enough people that you can do it, um, when, when it not geospatially within a city, right? All these people are in a city, but not not geospatially within a city. So then I, I, you know, what I end up looking at is stuff like how many people are protesting in a city per day or how many people are talking about a certain politician per day in, in, in D.C. versus New York or how many people are sharing this protest image in the city versus this other protest image in the same same city. All right. Thank you. And now to move a little away from the objective side, where do you see uh, the future geospatial analysis of social media posts to analyze like protest dynamics? going in the future? And what are your views on uh, your field in general and the question I just asked more or less? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the I think the most promising uh, application or the most promising future development is to build large scale um, contentious event data sets from social media data. So all of my work has been ad hoc, right? I have this paper, so then I, I, get, I get contentious event data for the Arab Spring. I have a paper about Venezuela, so then I get contentious event data for Venezuela. But when I told you earlier that newspapers are how we, we collect this type of data, there are actually uh, you know, data sets that publish daily, you know, daily reports of protests all around the world using standardized variables. And so you can do some, some really impressive stuff based on newspaper data that you can't get with social media data. And the difference is simply resources. You know, it's that people have been doing newspapers for, for decades and they're very senior scholars doing it. And, and in a few years, you know, I, I think I'll be able to do something similar, right? My research has shown how we can and create protest data um, in many more cities for, for much more time that other data sets don't get in. So it's really just about getting the resources to, uh, um, to nail down the classifiers, nail down some aggregation issues, collect some more data, like get more data per day, and then, and then build that data set. So that's the data part. 
the geospatial is not much past city day. So there's actually really honest, there's not much advanced to be done over, over geospatial stuff, except that because there are many more social media posts, you get more geographic coverage, right? So my point is you get like second and third tier cities that you don't get in other data sets, but, but you don't really get more fine grain geospatial resolution. Um, so, so the real advance is then um, once we get these, these data, what are the kinds of things that we can study with them that we cannot study with, with newspapers or the archival type stuff that I mentioned? And there are, are three main things that I think are enabled by these data. The first is the study of, of, of protester demographics. That is, um, we, we know from surveys that, that men and women often participate differently, educated people and educated people participate differently. Uh, different racial groups will go to different protests. That's not just a statement about America, that's true in, in many parts of the world. And if you are to read a, a newspaper article, the journalist might say, you know, there were students and grandmothers at the protest, but it'll be vague stuff, right? Or there was youth and adults. But with, with social media, we can get a much better estimate of, of the percentage of protesters who are men and women or adults, youth and senior citizens or belonging to certain uh, racial groups. Um, as well as, you know, are, like, are they coming from, from other parts of the country to come to, to a protest? Uh, so the point is like, you can really start to understand demographics of protesters in a way that you couldn't before and therefore figure out how that affects protests and how that may vary by, by you know, country or time period or issue. The second is to study emotions. So similarly, newspapers are gonna be very vague, but by doing text analysis and image analysis, we can start to understand how, how motivational anger is or fear is or shame. And these are all things that have been studied in case studies or surveys or, or lab experiments, but never cross national, cross city, cross national by day, um, and therefore has limited our, our understanding about how these actually these emotions actually operate in the real world. And then third is, is actually understanding violence better. And what I mean by that is if you want to study from newspapers, how, how police violence or even protest or violence affects protests, you're left with very coarse measures. So you might get like a one for if police were present two for were they riot police, three for was there tear gas, four for live ammunition and five for arrests and like six for casualties. And that'd be considered sophisticated. I just gave you a very detailed variable. More often than not, it's like, were there police or were people arrested or how many people were, were arrested? And so what happens is you get different research teams that code different behaviors as the same number, as a two or as a three. And so it's very hard to interpret results across, across studies. But with social media, and especially with images, we can train a computer to generate a, a, a real value number between zero and one for violence. And so you can compare a violence of 0.75 to a 0.7, to a 0.65 to a 0.6. You can even get, get I, I don't wanna like overpromise and say a 0.65 is different than a 0.64, but you, you get much, much more detailed numbers than you do from newspapers. And so you can tease apart different, different violence, different types of violence at, at a much uh, more granular level than, than with newspapers. And because 
because you're you're using images for this and images are, are a more uh, universally understood form of communication, that is visual language is more universal than, than spoken language, the, the estimates of violence you, you get are not gonna be as sensitive to, to research teams building their estimates of violence. So much better data and then a, a much more uh, detailed understanding of these events thanks to to demographics, emotions, and and violence. So thank you, Doctor. Uh, thank you so much, Doctor Steiner Threlkeld. That was um, this was a really good episode for us, and it really helped us understand, uh, you know, how data and how Twitter posts can be used to understand protests. I mean, uh, in fact, what you just said about how um, you know how the increase in the amount of data that we have right now can you know really help us to. Uh, to understand protests because of the because the, just the scale allows us to go down to a granular level and look at differences like smaller differences between protests and quantify these smaller differences and then also I think with such a large amount of data we can actually uh, really engage in a proper study of comparative politics as you know um, with uh, with so much data from different countries we can actually compare countries and or states across. Um, numerous different variables with all the data we have. But so, so thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, seeing how this field advances in the future. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Arnab. Thanks, Anish. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Katakar. Make sure to check out some of our other episodes on our website at katakar.media. You can also listen to them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more podcast services. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to join us next time.